Mina has spent the morning being dressed, brushed, poked, prodded and fussed over by a horde of ladies-in-waiting, and is damn near ready to explode. The tension is killing her, and these stupid wedding preparations are nothing but one enormous distraction. She needs to be out there, overseeing things, directly involved, to ensure that nothing goes wrong. Instead, she is locked up here in the east wing of the palace, having her hair done. She wants to scream. Thank the Seven for Cadmus, at least. Preparations have started well enough, it reports. The cultists, disguised as bar staff and waiters, have arrived with their wagon loads of barrels marked up as Chateau Rogoth Grand Cru, and have been waved through into the palace grounds by bored-looking guards. Priests, garbed in their elaborate ceremonial robes, have moved through the reception hall, performing celebratory rites over the food and drink as the guests have begun to arrive. Things are going according to plan. One of the cultists even approached me, Cadmus informs her, when they are able to grab a brief moment alone, with a message from the voice of the machine, congratulating you on the success of the infiltration. They seem to have bought what you're selling. I hope so, Cadmus, Mina replies. There's still an awful lot that could go wrong. I just have this horrible feeling there's some detail I've missed. Alexis, followed by a gaggle of lackeys and hangers-on, sweeps into the opulent chamber. He is brought to a halt by her appearance and seems genuinely impressed. Darling cousin, you look simply divine. What a transformation. Who would have imagined this vision that stands before me? Mina scowls, not buying the flattery for a second. What do you want, Alexis? I'm rather busy at the moment. Alexis looks bemused. What do I want? To escort you, darling Philomena. To give you away. It's time, dearest cousin. Time to stand before the seven singers and proclaim your vows before them and your husband-to-be. It is time to be married. Cadmus leans in and whispers, I think perhaps we've found that missing detail. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning, the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, with only 48 hours to go before Doomsday and the whole city in chaos, Mina visited the House of Whispers. There, she met with her cousin Alexis and with her bridegroom, Tristan. The latter seemed as guileless as the former was duplicitous and the meeting left Mina wondering, who is pulling Tristan's strings? But there's little time for such speculation. The cult of the machines step up their bombing campaign, 
and Mina only has two days to enact a plan to prevent her wedding from going up in smoke. There had been so much to do and so little time to prepare. So many people to see and so much riding on their responses. She had started by talking with the one man she was almost certain would go out of his way not to help her. Digby, first the Whisperer's personal assistant and now Alexis's, was officious, obstructive and smug, a little round ball of frustration and hostility. But he was also an absolute goldmine of information, should he be persuaded to part with it. Digby had been with the House of Whisperers for as long as anyone could remember, and knew everything about everything that went on there. If anyone knew something that could help her, it was Digby. Getting him to share that knowledge, well, that would be the hard part. And so she had brought along a carrot, so to speak, a juicy tidbit of information of her own to share that perhaps might loosen tight lips. I had a visitor a while back, she'd remarked breezily, sitting on a scowling Digby's desk and knocking over a stack of papers. He described himself as the competition and tried to blackmail me into slipping false intel to the Whisperer. She had gone on to describe her two encounters in some detail, only pausing to ask, I assume from the description you know who this individual is and the organisation he represents. For the first time since she'd entered his office, something like a smile had played over Digby's thin lips. The House of Whispers can neither confirm nor deny knowledge of said individual. However, I can confirm that you have been docked three weeks' pay for your unauthorised absences. Also, please sign this. Mina had taken the proffered sheet of paper. What is it? A notification of commencement of disciplinary proceedings, confirmation form 11B. Pursuant to Clause 9.2.1 of your contract of engagement with the House of Whispers, to wit, withholding information likely to pose threat, risk or harm to the organisation shall result in disciplinary proceedings which, if upheld, shall result in dismissal for gross misconduct. Digby had been unable to keep the smirk off his face. You may think your name protects you, and you can just play fast and loose with the rules as it suits you, Miss Montessario, but in this organisation we have governance, controls, regulations. That's how things are done in an orderly and consistent manner. Not by having rogue agents swan in and out whenever they feel like it, failing to file proper paperwork and taking unauthorised actions against acid organisations. It had taken Mina a moment to unpack all of that. Wait, are you talking about the cult of the machine and the pipe runners? But why would you... The gears were in her brain. Wait, are you saying you wanted the pipe runners and the cult working together, bombing the city? Was the house using them as a weapon against other targets? Digby's face had shut up shop the shutters coming down and settling back into his normal, inscrutable middle-distance gaze. The House of Whispers can neither confirm nor deny knowledge of said accusations. However, it is incumbent upon me to remind you, Miss Montessario, that, as a House agent, it is not permitted to question or speculate on any potential operations to which said agent lacks appropriate clearance, 
although you're welcome to continue this discussion if you wish. I'm sure I have another 11B around here somewhere. Mina had stormed out, though in truth she had come away with more than she'd expected. That little slip of Digby's had suggested that the house had far more of an active role than she'd imagined in the cult's activities. She's not sure of the exact nature of that role, but it absolutely justifies her reluctance to trust the House of Whispers with knowledge of the planned attack on the wedding. And she'd learned one more thing. Whatever prevarication Digby had provided regarding the visitor, he had known exactly who she'd been talking about. Ah, Digby. Haven't we all met a Digby at some point? Too many points, probably. I mentioned in a previous episode that I was going to introduce a countdown clock for this portion of the game, limiting what preparations Mina could put in place. Rather than timing events between now and the wedding... I gave her a four-segment countdown clock. She could do four things, whatever those four things might be, and no more. I decided that those four things would be four meetings that would take place prior to the wedding. Having said previously that she had been too intent upon acting alone, I think both she and I have come to the realisation that her plan can only succeed with the support of others. Given that a mythic fate roll indicated the visitor still hadn't made contact, I decided to go digging for clues at the House of Whispers first, and Alexis's PA seemed like a good place to start. The answers I did or did not get here would determine the next steps in Mina's plan. I actually asked Mythic a question I shouldn't have here. I asked where the visitor was which is not something that Mina would or should know, and so is not something that was really reasonable for me to ask. That occurred to me after I'd asked the question, but I figured I'd let the results stand, in case Digby knew and happened to be forthcoming. The answer, mistrust prison, was actually quite interesting, and if we ever get back to the visitor and his crew, I may explore it further. Given what I know of the setting, I know what this prompt means – But for now, let's put that to one side and focus on Digby. So, I randomly generated my NPC. Conscientiousness 4, Agreeable 2, Neurotic 3, Openness 3, Extrovert 4, with the motivations Encourage the Law, Hinder Success, and Spoil Beauty. Whew, boy, this guy just lives to dot the I's, cross the T's, and spoil other people's days. What a peach. The semi-randomly rolled Une relationship was distrustful, with a starting mood of cautious. Sounds about right. I could see which way this was going to go. However, Mina's visit wasn't a total bust. A successful insight check revealed that Digby knew who the visitor was, and, and when I asked Une what the last discussion topic was, I got Digby Speaks of Secrets regarding the PC's current story relating to the cult and with a description of Waste Dispute. That led me to the conclusion that Digby had let slip that the house had some sort of relationship with the cult or pipe-runners, though, of course, Digby wouldn't give much away. Perhaps just a little teaser of a possible future plot thread. All that stuff about disciplinary proceedings, well, I just made that up as I wrote. I figured that was just Digby being Digby, 
i.e. a pencil-pushing creep who gets his kicks by using the rules to push people around and make himself feel like he's Billy Big Bollocks. Form 11B just seemed like a suitable way of demonstrating that. I toyed with adding the pending disciplinary as one of my mythic threads, but dismissed that idea pretty rapidly. It was just a bit of flavour and fluff I wrote rather than a plot thread introduced by the mythic GM and, well, let's face it, who wants to listen to the tales of Mina's one-woman war on the House of Whispers HR department? And so we come away with some hints and plot thread teases, but nothing really concrete. That didn't go the way Mina had hoped, and so the chaos is going to rise to four. Let's see if her next port of call bears any riper fruit. She had felt it on the streets. That undercurrent of fear, the ever-present tension evident in the hurried paces, the furtive glances of those few that braved the evening wind and rain. She had passed several establishments with smashed or boarded-up windows. Gang tags had been daubed over every wall, a not uncommon sight in the spot, but here, on the streets of the Mercer's Quarter, it was pretty much unheard of. And the bluecoats, normally so prevalent in this wealthy district, had been conspicuous by their absence. The flyers had been new too, pasted to walls and shopfronts. The bulk seemed to be calling for a declaration of dominar martial law and the mass deportation of undesirables from the city, whoever they might be. Though there was no small number preaching the exact opposite, violent revolutionary overthrow of the dominar and the ruling houses. There were even some, Mina had realised with incredulity, in support of the cult of the great machine. It had been a relief to finally step inside the warm, familiar confines of Dr. Krop's alchemical emporium. The shelved walls, lit by the soft orange glow of gaslight, lined with bottles, flasks and jars of varied elements, salves and tinctures, and home to uncounted strange odours, had reminded her strongly of the doctor's old study in Montessario Palace. The diminutive doctor had emerged from behind the counter, arms spread wide and a broad smile upon their face. Philomena, my dear girl, they'd cried, drawing her into a hug and then holding her at arm's length to examine her with loving eye. Are you well? Eating properly? Keeping out of trouble for a change? Mina had laughed. It had been a long time since she'd seen her old tutor, but she had found them little changed. I am well enough, doctor, and all the better for seeing you. But as for trouble, well, that's sort of why I'm here. Dr. Ellie Crop had arched a wry eyebrow, their eyes twinkling with amusement. You don't say, and how might I be of assistance? I really don't have time to explain all of it, but suffice to say I am in desperate need, and if anyone can help me, it's you. I need a way to neutralise infernal powder, Doctor, and I need to neutralise lots of it. And I'm hoping against hope that you have some idea how it might be done. The alchemical teacher turned shopkeeper had grinned proudly. Some idea? My dear girl, you are looking at the inventor of the technique. A technique, I might add, that was arrived at only as the result of the most extensive and meticulous research. Mina knew Dr. Crop of old. They had a tale to tell, and they were relishing the telling of it. 
and at any other time she would have loved to hear it. But right now, she was up against the clock. Doctor, I truly hate to do this, but I'm going to need the 30-second version. Trust me when I tell you that many, many lives hang in the balance and every minute counts. How about this? Uh, Give me the quick version now and I'll treat you to an afternoon at Stoke Park Hot Springs. What do you say? She had felt her wallet throwing up its hands in outrage at the suggestion. The doctor had looked a bit nonplussed, but the lure of the most exclusive spa in Kairos had won out. Very well. Well, simply put. It had gone against every instinct, but the doctor had forced himself to keep it brief. Simply put, the clue is in the name. Infernal powder is not just a fanciful moniker, my dear. The stuff really is infernal in origin. Goodness only knows where it's being sourced from. The manufacturing process must really be quite something. Doctor? <clears throat> yes, of course. Uh, neutralization. Well, now, uh, once I had determined the origin of the substance, the next step was comparatively easy. I was able to engage the services of a devotee of Droom, who cast a blessing on the substance without their realising what it was they were blessing, of course. You know those Droomians, always on the hunt for knowledge they can turn to their own purposes. Anyway, a simple blessing did the trick, rent the power completely inert. I don't know how much use that will be to you, though. The services of the Singers of the Seven don't come cheap and I imagine all your capital is going to be tied up paying for my pedicures and facials. A broad grin of elation and relief had spread across Mina's face. You know, I think I know just the person who can help. With the introduction of Dr. Crop we get a little more of a glimpse into Mina's history, and a tremendously positive opportunity for Mina, a way to disable the powder. I'm not going to go into the full details of Crop's creation this time, that's available in the show notes if you're interested, but I will go into the Doctor's discovery that uses the Bless spell in order to render the powder inert. That discovery came from a combination of three things. Firstly, the Doctor's motivations, rolled randomly using Une, included process the church. Well, that made no sense to me at all, until I determined that he knew how to disable the powder, and I asked how. The mythic event answer was vengeance disruption. That, combined with the odd motivation, and my own setting knowledge that infernal powder is in fact the ground-up remnants of demons, led me to my answer this man of science turned to divine processes in order to thwart whatever demonic schemes lie behind the manufacture of the infernal powder. The first level spell, Bless, isn't really what would normally be used for this purpose. It's a combat spell, granting allies a small bonus to attacks and saving throws. But the next closest thing is the fifth level spell, Hallow, and that's not right either. So I'm going to fudge the rules here a bit. The spell's called Bless, all low-level clerics can cast it, and it fits the fiction, so let's roll with it. There were a couple more NPCs visited and questioned as Mina slowly and surely drew her plans against the cult of the Great Machine, but they were less interesting in narrative terms. All I really needed from those was a simple yes or no, and I got that by creating the NPCs as normal, with the personality profile, the unaid disposition and so on, 
and with an understanding of who I was talking to, their relationships with my PC, and their moods, I could roll for my binary questions. But, as I say, those meetings were not really necessary to present on camera. The outcome of each will become apparent in later scenes, and it's the outcomes that matter most. Again, if you're keen to see who those people are and what the outcomes of those conversations were, you can take a look in the show notes, with the caveat that they probably represent minor spoilers for upcoming events. Because there's both some backstory we might explore, and upcoming events planned with Dr. Crop, and also because I think he's probably the most interesting of the four new NPCs, I'm adding him to my mythic characters list. Sorry, Digby. Conversely, I've taken out the plot thread Carnage in the Blood Pits. Things have gathered a bit of steam now, with the story momentum heading in a rather particular direction, and that thread seems just like a bit of a distraction at this point. And also not a particularly exciting one at that. Trimming down your thread, and also NPC lists from time to time, is a good way of keeping the emerging narrative from becoming too random, or at least controlling the degree of randomness just a little bit. By curating your lists, you create some story guardrails, and that can be useful at times, in particular when you're in a rush to a climactic scene, a season finale, or a key story milestone. At other times, you might want to open out your world, throwing in as many threads as possible to create a wide set of story possibilities. That makes a lot more sense when you're starting out on a new story arc. A very quick note on some digital tools that I used for this episode. Because I was travelling by plane while I was writing some of this, and obviously didn't want to spread my Mythic deck out over my tiny little meal tray, I turned instead to an Android app called Mythic Assistant. Populated with my threads and characters, as well as my Chaos Factor, this served exactly the same purpose as the cards. I find it nowhere near as satisfying to use, it lacks the tactile nature of the card deck. And that's why I only break it out for writing on the go, but it is a great backup tool. Similarly, the Android app Adventuresmith is useful for replicating all sorts of solo RPG tools, including Une. Finally, with the Crit Dice app installed, I have everything I need to play my solo RPG on the go. Before I finish this episode, I wanted to set some expectations. I've been popping out an episode of this podcast every week for about 20 weeks or so now, and while I'm still very much enjoying the story and the 5e mythic gaming process, I am starting to struggle a bit with that cadence. Not least because it's hoovering up all my available geek time. And right now, I have a bunch of other new shinies clamouring for my attention. I'm keen to sink my teeth into Free League's The One Ring RPG now that the solo Strider mode has arrived. And I recently dusted off Eldritch Horror and have a game of that set up that I'm three turns into. I've also picked up the new Modifius edition of Five Leagues from the Borderlands, which looks wonderful. And I want to get five parsecs from home back to the table as well. And the Army Painter Speed Paint range has reignited my enjoyment of mini-painting. And, well, you get the idea. Too much to do, too little time to do it, and as much as I love this podcast, it is kind of getting in the way of all of those other things. And so, for that reason, and also just to put myself under a little bit less self-inflicted pressure, I'm going to switch the release schedule of the Lone Adventurer episodes to fortnightly for now, and see how that goes. Right, 
All is rosy in Mina's world right now. Let's drop that chaos factor to two and see how long that lasts. Mina stands before the High Devotant of Ankara in the Grand Chapel of Tereth Palace, her eyes wide and heart thumping. The pinched and sour-faced old High Priest has been droning on for what seems like forever, but Mina has barely heard a word she's said. She feels a trickle of a cold sweat run down between her shoulder blades. With the high-stakes game she's been playing against the cult, the wedding itself had almost faded into the background, an incidental piece of the wider puzzle. It doesn't feel incidental now. She risks a glimpse to the side and instantly regrets it. Tristan is standing at her side, looking down with kindness in his eyes. Beyond him and behind him are sat the absolute cream of Kyra society, the heads and senior families of all the great houses. What seems like the entirety of House Tereth and House Montessario, religious leaders, guild leaders, hundreds of the city elite, all in one place. A risk that had seemed abstract in the planning seems suddenly terribly real. If this goes wrong. But even these concerns are struggling for space against this sudden, inescapable reality that confronts her. She's getting married. To a man she barely knows, but who she knows enough to suspect she can never really love. She has been fearless in the face of impossible odds and deadly foes, but this is different. She desperately wants to run, but there's nowhere to run to, and even if there was, she's paralysed with fear. This is like a waking nightmare. And yet part of her knows there is no choice. Even if the event didn't form the centrepiece of her plan to take down the cult of the machine, there is the wider fate of the city to consider. While she is sure that Tristan's plan for societal unification is merely a front for the machinations of other, more cynical players, there is one inescapable truth she cannot deny. The joining of Houses Montessario and Tereth is the greatest chance the city has to avoid descending into all-out civil war. This is not a marriage of convenience, it's a marriage of necessity. She's dimly aware that all attention is suddenly focused on her. The High Devotant and Tristan are both looking at her expectantly. Um, what? she asks. The High Devotant looks pained, but repeats. Phenomena Cassandra Montessario, did you take this man to be your husband? To live together in divine harmony, to love him, to honour him, to cherish him forever, and to pursue all others in the sight of the seven. Well, bugger. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. 
you can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>